Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Scary Stories from a Graveyard. Tonight, we'll be continuing our tale from yesterday. But before we talk about that, let's get into what tonight's cemetery is. Tonight's cemetery is Hinman Cemetery in Labette County, Kansas. This is another very small cemetery, my friends, with only ten residents known for certain to reside there. Very isolated and very peaceful. And if you decide to visit, be respectful. And leave it as you found it. Not much to say, else to say for now, my friends, on Hinman Cemetery. So we will move on to the rest of our story, or for a continuation of our story, at the very least. That story being Lot Two, number two forty-nine, by Arthur Conan Doyle. And, uh, let's see, we should probably set up where we left off on here, so that, you remember where we're going here, <laughs> we had just left the group with Bellingham having had his rather unfortunate fit and whatever issues he was having in his room concerning the mummy that was in there, which is lot number 249, and Smith had just left. In this strange way began the acquaintance between Edward Bellingham and Amber Crombie Smith, an acquaintance which the latter, at least, had no desire to push further. Bellingham, however, appeared to have taken a fancy to his rough-spoken neighbor, and made his advances in such a way that he could hardly be repulsed without absolute brutality. Twice he called to thank M Smith for his assistance, and many times afterwards he looked in with books, papers, and such other civilities as two bachelor neighbors can offer each other. He was, as Smith soon found out, a man of wide reading, with Catholic tastes, and an extraordinary memory. His manner, too, was so pleasing and suave that one came after a time, to overlook his repellent appearance. For a jaded and wearied man, he was no unpleasant companion, and Smith found himself, after a time, looking forward to his visits, and even returning them. Clever as he undoubtedly was, however, the medical student seemed to detect a dash of insanity in the man. He broke out at times into a high, inflated style of talk, which was in contrast with the simplicity of his life. 
it is a wonderful thing, he cried, to feel that one can command powers of good and of evil, a ministering angel or a demon of vengeance. And again of Monkhouse Lee, he said, Lee is a good fellow, an honest fellow, but he is without strength or ambition. He would not make a fit partner for a man with great with a great enterprise. He would not make a fit partner for me. At such hints and in innuendos, Stolid, Stolid Smith, puffing solemnly at his pipe, would simply raise his eyebrows and shake his head, with little interjections of medical wisdom as to earlier hours and fresher air. One habit Bellingham had developed of late, which Smith knew to be a frequent herald of a weakening mind. He appeared to be forever talking to himself. At late hours of the night, when there could be no visitor with him, Smith could still hear his voice beneath him in a low, muffled monologue, sunk almost to a whisper, and yet very audible in the silence. This solitary babbling annoyed and distracted the student, so that he spoke more than once to his neighbor about it. Bellingham, however, flushed up at the charge, and denied curtly that he had uttered a sound. Indeed, he showed more annoyance over the matter than the occasion seemed to demand. Had Abercrombie Smith had any doubt as to his own ears, he had not to go far to find corroboration. Tom Stiles, the little wrinkled manservant who had attended to the wants of the lodgers in the turret for a longer time than any man's memory could carry him, was sorely put to it over the same matter. If you please, sir, he said he, as he tidied down the top chamber one morning. Do you think Mr. Bellingham is all right, sir? All right, Stiles? Yes, sir. Right in his head, sir. Why should he not be, then? Well, I don't know, sir. His habits has changed of late. He is not the same man he used to be. Though I make free to t say that he was never quite one of my gentlemen, like Mr. Hasty or yourself, sir. He's took to talking to himself something awful. I wonder if it don't disturb you. I don't know what to make of him, sir. I don't know what business it is of yours, Styles. Well, I takes an interest, Mr. Smith. It may be forward of me, but I can't help it. I feel sometimes as if I was my mother and father to your young gentleman. Was mother and father to my young gentleman. It all falls on me when things go wrong and the relations come out. But, Mr. Bellingham, sir, I want to know what it is that walks about this room, his room sometimes, when he's out and when the door's locked on the outside. <laughs> You're talking nonsense, Styles. Maybe so, sir. But I heard it more than once with my own ears. Rubbish, Styles. Very good, sir. You'll ring the bell if you want me. Amber Crombie Smith gave a little heed, gave little heed to the gossip of the old man servant. But a small incident occurred a few days later, which left an unpleasant effect upon his mind and brought the words of Styles forcibly to his memory. Bellingham had come up to see him late one night, 
and was entertaining him with an interesting account of the rock tombs of Beni Hassan in Upper Egypt, when Smith, whose hearing was remarkably acute, distinctly heard the sound of a door opening on the landing below. There's some fellow gone in or out of your room, he remarked. Bellingham sprang up and stood helpless for a moment, with the expression of a man who was half incredulous and half afraid. I surely locked it. I am almost positive that I locked it, he stammered. No one could have opened it. Why, I hear someone coming up the steps now, said Smith. Bellingham rushed out through the door, slammed it loudly behind him, and hurried down the stairs. About halfway up, halfway down, Smith heard him stop and thought he caught the sound of whispering. A moment later, the door beneath him shut, a key creaked in a lock, and Bellingham, with beads of moisture upon his pale face, ascended the stairs once more and re-entered the room. "'It's all right,' he said, throwing himself down in a chair. "'It was that fool of a dog. He had pushed the door open. I don't know how I came to forget to lock it.' "'I didn't know you kept a dog,' said Smith, looking very thoughtfully at the disturbed face of his companion. "'Yes, I haven't had him long. I must get rid of him. He's a great nuisance.' "'He must be, if you find it so hard to shut him up. "'I should have thought that shutting the door would have been enough, without locking it. "'I want to prevent old Styles from letting him out. "'He's of some value, you know, and it would be awkward to lose him.' "'I'm a bit of a dog fancier myself,' said Smith, "'still gazing hard at his companion from the corner of his eyes. "'Perhaps you'll let me have a look at him.' "'Certainly. "'But I am afraid I c it cannot be tonight.' I have an appointment. Is that clock right? And I am a quarter of an hour late already. You'll excuse me, I am sure. He picked up his cap and hurried from the room. In spite of his appointment, Smith heard him re-enter his own chamber and lock his door upon the inside. The interview left a disagreeable impression upon the medical student's mind. Bellingham had lied to him, and lied so clumsily, clumsily that it looked as if he had desperate reasons for concealing the truth. Smith knew that his neighbor had no dog. He knew also that the step which he had heard upon the stairs was not the step of an animal. But if it were not, then what could it be? There was old Stiles' statement about some, the something which used to pace the room at times when the owner was absent. Could it be a woman? Smith rather inclined to the view. If so, it would mean disgrace and expulsion to Bellingham if it were discovered by the authorities, so that his anxiety and falsehoods would might be accounted for. <clears throat> Excuse me. And yet it was inconceivable that an undergraduate could keep a woman in his rooms without being instantly detected. Be the explanation what it might, there was something ugly about it, and Smith determined, as he turned to his books, to discourage all further attempts at intimacy on the part of his soft-spoken and ill-favored neighbor. But his work was destined to, destined to interruption that night. He had hardly caught tip the broken threads of when a firm, heavy footfall came three steps at a time from, from below, and hasty, in blazer and flannels, burst into the room. Still at it! 
said he, plumping down on his wanton armchair. What a chap you are to, to, are to stew. I believe an earthquake might come and knock Oxford into a cocked hat, and you would sit perfectly passive with your books among the reins. However, I won't bore you long. Three whiffs of backy, and I am off. What's the news, then? asked Smith, cramming a plug of bird's eye into his briar with his forefinger. Nothing very much. Wilson made 70 for the freshman against the 11. They say that they will play him instead of Budicum. For Budicum is clean off color. He used to be able to bowl a little. But it's nothing but half volleys and long hops now. Medium, right? suggested Smith, with the intense gravity which comes from upon a varsity, a varsity man when he speaks of athletics. Inclining too fast with a work from leg. Comes with the arm about three inches or so. He used to be nasty on a wet wicket. Oh, by the way, have you heard about Long Norton? What's that? He's been attacked. Attacked? Yes, just as he was turning out of the high street within a hundred yards of the gate of Olds. But who? Ah, that's the rub. If you said what, you would be more grammatical. Norton swears that it was not human, and indeed, from the scratches on his throat, I would be inclined to agree with him. What then? Have we come down to spooks? Abercrombie Smith puffed his scientific contempt. Well, no, I don't think that is quite the idea, either. I'm inclined to think that if any showman has lost a great ape lately, and the brute is in these parts, a jury would find a true bill against it. Norton passes that way every night, you know, about the same hour. There's a tree that hangs low over the path, the big elm from Rainey's garden. Horton thinks the thing dropped on him out of the tree. However, he was nearly strangled by two arms, which, he says, were as strong and as thin as steel bands. He saw nothing, only those beastly arms that tightened and tightened on him. He yelled his head nearly off, and a couple of chaps came running, and the thing went over the wall like a cat. He never got a good fair sight of it the whole time. I gave Norton a shake-up, I can tell you. I tell him it has been... A, as good as a change at the seaside for him. A garrotter, most likely, said Smith. <coughs> Excuse me. Very possibly. Norton says not, but we don't mind what he says. The garrotter had long nails, and was pretty smart at swinging himself over walls. By the way, your beautiful neighbor would be pleased if he heard about it. He had a grudge against Norton, and he's not a man, from what I know of him, to forget his little debts. But, hello, old chap. What have you got in your noodle? Nothing, Smith answered curtly. He had started in his chair, and looked, and the look had flashed over his face, which comes upon a man who was struck suddenly by some unpleasant idea. You looked as if something I said had taken you on the raw. By the way, have you made the acquaintance of Master B since I last since I looked in last, have you not? Young Monkhouse Lee told me something to that effect. Yes, I know him slightly, 
He has been up here once or twice. Well, you're big enough and ugly enough to take care of yourself. He's not what I should call exactly a healthy sort of Johnny, though. No doubt he's very clever and all that. But you'll soon find out for yourself. Lee is all right. He's a very decent fat little fellow. Well, so long, old chap. I row Mullins for the vice-chancellor's pot on Wednesday week. So mind you come down in case I don't see you before. Bovine Smith laid down his pipe and turned stolidly to his books once more. But with all the will in the world, he found it very hard to keep his mind upon his work. It would slip away to brood upon the man beneath him, and upon the little mystery which hung around his chambers. Then his thoughts turned to this singular ta attack of which Hasty had spoken, and to the grudge which Bellingham said, was said to owe the object of it. The two ideas would persist in rising together in his mind, as though there was some close and intimate connection between them, and yet the suspicion was so dim and vague that it could not be put down in words. Confound the chap, cried Smith, as he shied his book on pathology across the room. He has spoiled my night's reading, and that's reason enough, if there were no other, why I should steer clear of him in the future. For ten days, the medical student confirmed, confined himself so closely to his studies that he neither saw nor heard anything of either the, of the men beneath him. At the hours when Bellingham had been accustomed to visit him, he took care to sport his oak, and though he more than once heard a knocking at his outer door, he resolutely answered to, refused to answer it. One afternoon, however, he was descending the stairs when, just as he was passing it, Bellingham's door flew open, and young Malkhouse Lee came out with his eyes sparkling and a dark flush of anger upon his olive cheeks. Close at his heels followed Bellingham, his fat, unhealthy face all quivering with malignant passion. "'You fool!' he hissed. "'You'll be sorry!' "'Very likely!' cried the other. "'Mind what I say. It's off. I won't hear of it.' "'You've promised anyhow.' "'Oh, I'll keep that. I won't speak. "'But I'd rather little Eva was in the, her grave. "'Once for all, it's off. She'll do what I say. "'We don't want to see you again.' So much Smith could not avoid hearing, but he hurried on, for he had no wish to be involved in the dispute. There had been a serious breach between them, that was clear enough, and Lee was going to cause the engagement with his sister to be broken off. Smith thought of Hasty's comparison of the toad and the dove, and was glad to think that the matter was at an end. Bellingham's face, when he was in a passion, was not pleasant to look upon. He was not a man to whom an innocent girl could be trusted for life. As he walked, Smith wondered, wondered languidly what could have caused the quarrel, and what the promise might be which Bellingham had so had been so anxious that Monkhouse Lee should keep. <coughs> Excuse me. It was the day of the sculling match between Hasty and Mullins and a stream of men were making their way down through the banks of the Isis. A May's sun was shining brightly, 
and the yellow path was barred with the black shadows of the tall elm trees. On either side the gray colleges lay back from the road, the hoary old mothers of mines looking out from their high mulleined windows at the tide of young life which swept so merrily past them. Black-clad tutor, tutors, prim officials, pale reading men, brown-faced, straw-hatted young athletes in white sweaters, or many-colored blazers, all were hurrying towards the blue winding river which curves through the Oxford meadows. Abercrombie Smith, with the intuition of an old oarsman, chose his position at the point where he knew that the struggle Sorry. if there were a struggle, would come. Far off he heard the hum which announced the start, the gathering roar of the approach, the thunder of running feet, and the shouts of the men in the boat beneath him. A spray of half-clad, deep-breathing runners shot past him, and craning over their shoulders he saw Hasty pulling a steady thirty-six, while his opponent... <coughs> with a jerky forty, was a good boat's length behind him. Smith gave a cheer for his friend, and pulling out his watch, he was starting off again for his chambers, when he felt a touch upon his shoulder, and found that young Monkhouse Lee was beside him. I saw you there, he said in a timid, depreciating way, deprecating way. I wanted to speak to you, if you could spare me a half hour. This cottage is mine. I share it with Harrington of Kings. Come in and have a cup of tea. I must be back presently, said Smith. I am hard on the grind at present. But I'll come in for a few minutes with pleasure. I wouldn't have come out only hasty as a friend of mine. So he is a mine. Hasn't he a beautiful style? Mullins wasn't in it. But come to the cottage. It's a little den of a place. But it is pleasant to work in during the summer months. It was a small, square, white building, with green doors and shutters, and a rustic trellis-work porch, standing back some fifty yards from the river's bank. Inside, the main room was roughly fitted up as a study, deal table, unpainted shelves with books, and a few cheap olographs upon the wall. A kettle sang upon a spirit stove, and there were tea, th tea things upon a tray on the table. Try that chair and have a cigarette, said Lee. Let me pour you out a cup of tea. It's so good of you to come in, for I know that your time is a good deal taken up. I wanted to say to you that once, oh, that if I were you, I w should change my rooms at once. Eh? Smith sat staring with a lighted match in one hand and his unlit cigarette in the other. Yes, it must seem very extraordinary, and the worst of it is that I cannot give my reasons, for I am under a solemn promise, a very solemn promise. But I may go so far as to say that I don't think Bellingham is a very safe man to live near. I intend to camp out here as much as I can for a time. Not safe? What do you mean? Ah, uh, that's what I mustn't say. But do take my advice and move your rooms. We had a grand row today. 
You must have heard us, for you came down the stairs. I saw that you had fallen out. He's a horrible chap, Smith. That is the only word for him. I have had doubts about him ever since that night when he fainted. You remember when you came down. I taxed him today, and he told me things that I that made my hair rise, and wanted me to stand in with him. I'm not straight-laced, but I am a clergyman's son, you know, and I think there are some things which are quite beyond the pale. I think, I only thank God that I have found him out before it was too late, for he was to have married into my family. That is all very fine, Lee, said Abercrombie Smith curtly, but either you are saying a great deal too much or a great deal too little. I give you a warning. If there's a real reason for warning, no promise can bind you. If I see a rascal about... To blow a place up with dynamite, no pledge will stand in my way of preventing him. Ah, but I cannot prevent him, and I can do nothing but warn you. Without saying what you warn me against. Against Bellingham. But that is childish. Why should I fear him or any man? I can't tell you. I can only entreat you to change your rooms. You are in danger where you are. I don't even say that Bellingham would wish to injure you, but it might happen, for he is a dangerous neighbor just now. Perhaps I know more than you think, said Smith, looking keenly at the young man's boyish, earnest face. Suppose I tell you that someone else shares Bellingham's rooms. Monkhouse sprang from his chair in uncontrollable excitement. You know then? He gasped. A woman. Lee dropped back again with a groan. My lips are sealed, he said. I must not speak. Well, anyhow, said Smith, rising, it is not likely that I should allow myself to be frightened out of my out of rooms which suit me very nicely. It would be a little too feeble for me to move out of all my goods and chattels because you say that Bellingham might in some unexplained way do me an injury. I think that I'll just take my chance and stay where I am. And as I see that it's nearly five o'clock, I must ask you to excuse me. He bade the young student adieu in a few court words, and made his way homeward, through the sweet spring evening, feeling half ruffled, half amused, as any other strong, unimaginative man might, who has been menaced by a vague and shadowy danger. There was one little indulgence which Henry Smith always allowed himself. However closely his work might press upon him, twice a week, on the Tuesday and, fr and the Friday, it was his invariable custom to walk over to Farlingford, the residence of Dr. Plumtree Peterson, situated about a mile and a half out of Oxford. Peterson had been a close friend of Smith's elder brother, Francis, and as he was a bachelor, fairly well-to-do, with a good cellar and a better library, his house was a pleasant goal for a man who has, was in need of a brisk walk. Twice a week, then, the medical student would swing out there among the dark country roads and spend a pleasant hour in Peterson's comfortable study, discussing over a glass of old port the gossip of the varsity or the very or the latest developments of medicine, 
or of surgery. <clears throat> Excuse me. I believe we'll stop there for tonight, my friends. So I would, uh, <laughs> I, I believe that will be a good stop. So I will see you again next week, my friends. And I uh, will bring you a, yet a continuation of lot number 249. I hope that you enjoyed our foray into it this evening and hope that you tune in next time to continue on our story. Until then, I hope you have a pleasant evening and a good tomorrow. And I hope to see you all again so very soon.